tuned for that, but I will leave you with a good night. I'm sorry, Gray Matters is up next. I know what day it is. Uh, I'll leave you with a good night and a go blue. Work it, make it, do it. Makes us harder, better, faster, stronger. Not, not, not that that don't kill me. Can only makes us stronger. I need you to hurry up now. Cause I can't wait much longer. I know I got to be right now. Cause I can't get much stronger. Man, I've been waiting all night now. That's how long I've been on ya. Thank you for listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. Where the puck drops here. Right Let's now. get lost tonight. You could be my black Kate Moss tonight. Play secretary on the ball tonight. And you don't give a f- what they all say, right? Awesome, the Christian and Christian Dior. Damn, they don't make them like this anymore. I ask, cause I'm not sure. Do anybody make real anymore? Bow in the presence of greatness. Cause right now, that has forsaken us. You should be honored by my lateness. That I would even show up to this thing. So go ahead, go nuts, go ace. Especially in my pastel on my paper. Act like you can't tell who made this new gospel. Homie, take six and take this. Hater. Well, we're about to listen to a pre-recorded version of Grey Matters. But before we begin that process, I would like to encourage listeners to uh, remember to go vote tomorrow. Uh, there's an important local matter involving the uh, transit authority and the uh, potential to make buses more available for those who need them to get to their jobs and to school. So don't forget to vote tomorrow. And now, Gray Matters. Yeah, may as well. <clears throat> Still rolling over there. So. Of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And still talking about Nixon, I'm Jim Dwyer. Yeah, we spent last week uh, kind of reviewing some of the many, many <laughs> interesting aspects of the scandal known as Watergate, which uh, continues to interest me for a lot of reasons and um, with mysteries still remaining I think Um, we were talking I was mentioning a book uh, I believe by the way this I don't have my actual written notes in this particular file somewhere I have it but I believe this book was published in 1978 it's a book called Spooks by James Haugen and uh, it's just fascinating to to read about some of the connections between Richard Nixon and this whole what got him into trouble ultimately Uh, I've always speculated that there was something that Nixon believed was in Larry O'Brien's office it's well known that Larry O'Brien who of course was very close to the Kennedys He was John F. Kennedy's campaign manager in 1960. 
He was Bobby Kennedy's campaign manager in 1968 when he was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. He had worked uh, in the uh, intermission between these uh, campaigns, both as a, an aide to uh, Kennedy, sort of an off-the-books kind of aide, but also as a consultant to Howard Hughes. Um, so he worked with Robert Mayhew <laughs> and Howard Hughes. And Nixon, of course, had long-standing connections to Howard Hughes and campaign money. So uh, they reminded me, Nixon, of course, was known to be paranoid, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. So he, there may have been some concern about something that they thought they could pick up with the tapes. I don't know. They they were they basically bugged the Democratic National Headquarters in Washington D.C. where Larry O'Brien had his office. Unfortunately, and, all they got was uh, sort of sex talk uh, yeah. between secretaries about who did what on the weekend. Right. It was probably a. <clears throat> An early uh, incarnation of the Blastoff Girls. <laughs> You're a long time DNC WCBN listener. You might get a real kick out of that because they used to do that occasionally on Monday nights when they would uh, reveal to you, the WCBN <laughs> listener, about their weekend. <laughs> but uh, so there's a kind of a debate: were they going back in to replace the tape, a, a, a mic? Were they? Fixing a mic, they were having tr there were two telephones apparently bugged, and one of them was not getting much information. So picturing the burglars uh, over at the Howard Johnson across the street, listening to this sort of gibberish and nonsense, probably uh, led them to become frustrated, and they decided to either go for juicier material, or, which a theory that I've rejected long ago, but I, the book itself I find fascinating, is a book called Silent Coup that suggests that Nixon was actually overthrown by the CIA oh, right. um, because of detente, that the, this was actually a military operation involving the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, of the American military. And it's, I mean, it's at least a plausible theory at some strange level. Um, but Nixon's crimes and misdemeanors were so extensive that it, it doesn't hold weight at the end of the day. There's just too much other stuff there to uh, not realize that Watergate was not simply some sort of military operation against Richard Nixon because uh, he was exceedingly conservative. And while detente was officially a, uh, <clears throat> a State Department policy developed by uh, Henry Kissinger, and Nixon, they, they both, uh, I think it's fair to say, participated in, in a policy, a historical policy called detente. Um, you know, military arms production was continuing mm -hmm. at enormous pay, uh, rates. And, uh, well, it's, it's, it's well known that negotiations during the Kennedy administration and the Russians were ongoing. I've always said that a lot of the Cold War, I think, was somewhat exaggerated uh, regarding uh, American-Soviet relations. They're, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like that comical scene in Dr. Strangelove where the president, uh, what's his? Merkin Muffley. Yes, calls up Dimitri <laughs> on the red phone. Uh, it's, it's well known that they consulted uh, extensively during the Suez crisis in 1956, um, that they 
conferred during the frequent outbreaks of war in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. That 67. Clear modus vivendi about not going to war over mm-hmm. these regional conflagrations. So, and I've, I would even argue that it was in the interests of both the United States and the Soviet Union to exaggerate repeatedly the threat. Of the other. Of the other side. You know, the missile gap, for instance, the campaign issue that Kennedy brought up in 1960, was there was a missile gap. It was 10 to 1 in our favor. Um, but mm. Kennedy suggested otherwise to the public. Um, the United States always had superiority over the Soviet Union militarily, except for ground forces. Clearly, the size of the Soviet Union... Do you know how many time zones they have in the Soviet Union? <laughs> Eleven. Wow. Eleven, yeah. Uh, well, they could obviously employ a large number of troops. And there, it's factually known, for instance, that the Red Army killed 80% of the Nazi forces in World War II. This was a massive ground war that Adolf Hitler started. And Joseph Stalin, at least coming in from the uh, Soviet border into Germany, finished. Berlin was taken by the Soviet Union. So was Budapest, Warsaw. Prague. Prague, Sofia, Bucharest. Those are the facts. There's some people who want to argue that FDR gave this away at Yalta. Nope. <laughs> that was territory that Joseph Stalin controlled at that point. Anyway, uh, getting, back, getting back to the issues here, uh, it's fascinating to discover in this book about some of the paranoia that may have motivated Nixon into getting involved in the break-in of Watergate. Uh, because James McCord, who was one of the burglars, had placed a tap on a man named Spencer Oliver, who was Robert Bennett's nephew. Bennett was head of Mullen Company. Bennett also later served in the U.S. Senate, senator from Utah. And uh, very fascinating that he was denounced a couple of years ago as uh, he, he was challenged by a Tea Party person as not being conservative enough. So he was defeated in a primary mm. just a couple of years ago, uh, Utah being the most Republican state in the union, now has a young teabag senator named Lee. I don't know if he's related to Robert E. Lee, but we won't go there. But uh, Haugen writes um, about Spencer. This is kind of fascinating. He writes, um, there are some mysteries. Spencer Oliver became one of the mystery men in the Watergate burglary when creep wire t- wireman James McCord placed a tap on his phone at the DNC. While it took little imagination to make sense of the plumber's tap on Larry O'Brien's phone, besides his trucking general... Uh, policy of uh, political intelligence, he was witting of Howard Hughes's complicated internal affairs 
and their relationship to Nixon. No one could figure out why Hunt and the Cubans would want to bug Spencer Oliver. Specter, who was a minor character in this book, however knew why. He had naively alerted Egil Crow to his allegations and then laid them on the line to Oliver at the DNC. One of the purposes of the Watergate burglary was to learn what, if anything, the Democrats intended to do about Paul Lewis Weiler's connection to Richard Nixon and Specter's charges of narcotic smuggling. Then goes on to detail some of these amazing charges and the links to Robert Vesco. Robert Vesco is mentioned in the Watergate uh, tapes at certain points, and it seems that Robert Vesco had given Nixon some rather large sums of cash that uh, might have been hanging around in a safe. At one point, when John Dean talks about the fact that E. Howard Hunt is blackmailing the White House and that this is part of the cancer in the presidency, mm-hmm. <clears throat> a cancer that's growing and spreading geometrically, as he put it in the March 21st conversation, it's uh, this whole connection with Oliver and these interesting characters. The blunders by the burglars, whether purpose, and I'm quoting from Haugen now, were made purposely, perhaps at the instigation of Nixon loyalists and the plumbers at the White House is uncertain. Failing to consider the possibilities, however, would be naive. There's just too much there. The plumbers tap on Spencer Oliver's phone following Specter's conversations with Crow and Oliver. The countermeasure sweep of Vesco's offices by federal narcotics agents, DEA missing reports and inactivity on the case, the relationship between Vesco and Nixon, and Weiler and Nixon, Lucien Conan's alleged creation of a CIA-DEA assassination squad which shared Space House with Mitch Verbell himself, a... uh, prospective partner of Vesco, and the deliberate destruction by the DEA of Frank Peroff's cover after he reported Bouchard's assertion that Vesco and LeBlanc were behind three-cornered heroin transaction involving Marseille, Montreal, and San Jose. Now, Vesco at the time was a fugitive from justice, supposedly. He was looking to find a tax haven somewhere in the Caribbean and had been shopping his... uh, proposal of sort of a bank offshore that could move uh, drug money. Um, And he attempted Paraguay. I think he paid a visit to Francisco Franco and went to see um, baby Doc Duvalier at one point. He ended up, of course, being a fugitive from justice. But it's quite clear that there were some connections between Robert Vesco and Richard Allen who, of course, is a very famous spook who uh, later became Ronald Reagan's national security advisor. Uh, Hogan writes that Allen, a Notre Dame graduate with seven children, uh, was a veteran of the Hoover Institute on War, Peace, and Revolution, as well as the Georgetown Institute for Strategic Studies and an early supporter of Nixon. Strangely, he was also the target of a 1968 CIA investigation that has proved mysterious on several counts. 
he goes into this, and Allen became a member of the NSC. However, his, quote, ardor for the Cold War attracted Henry Kissinger's ire, and after nine months of presiding over the same intelligence community that had earlier investigated him, Allen resigned. He then returned to politics. In June of 71, the same month in which John Dean began to see receive CIA reports about IOS, Allen was appointed to a White House commission on East-West trade. A conservative theoretician, he brought an unusual combination of White House expertise to the White House as a former NSC member, and he had a stratospheric Q clearance that made him privy to the inner workings of the State Department and the White House. And what's interesting is that he apparently becomes connected to Vesco in this plan to create an offshore tax-free haven for banking and moving drug money that uh, remains a bit mysterious. It's sort of connected to some strange campaign contributions that Nixon um, clearly had. He clearly had cash from uh, both B.B. Rebozo and Howard Hughes. Of course, Howard Hughes gave money to both parties, yeah. So as as many tycoons do to hedge their bets. And Hughes had become obsessed personally with nuclear testing in the '60s, so he was giving he was calling Lyndon Johnson quite often to stop the nuclear testing because he at that point had decided he wanted to reside in Las Vegas full time, yeah. somewhere on some top floor, one of those ghastly casino hotels. I think it might have been the Sands, but don't quote me on that one. So it's uh, just fascinating um, how um, Richard Allen apparently interceded with Vesco and that um, there was a very loose connection between uh, Robert Vesco, who, by the way, I think grew up in Detroit hmm. at one point. Uh, he died a fugitive from justice, but... Uh, it was this uh, fascinating uh, offshore bank sort of empire, private empire, that um, Vesco and Allen had sort of planned on. Um, by the way, Baby Doc, just for the record, turned him down. Haugen notes that uh, the Duvaliers had been raking in an estimated $16 million per year for the past 20 years, the money deriving from unreported tax on tobacco products. And, of course, baby Doc Duvalier eventually had to flee Haiti. With suit suitcases uh, stuffed full of cash. And he were retired where? The French Riviera. Yeah. So these very interesting... Uh, connections between this utopian scheme concocted by Michael Oliver, Richard Allen, Robert Vesco, um, is, is rather remarkable stuff and uh, may give one a, a sort of intuitive sense of what the burglars were after or what they were worried about. Because uh, at this point, it's quite obvious, back in in June of uh, 1972, that Nixon was pretty much going to win in an easy landslide re-election. Well, the hope was However, that, yeah. the, 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 the burglaries had been going on for several months before that. 
Oh, I mean, they just got caught on this one. Yeah. But the, yeah, exactly. There were there were a number of unsolved burglaries in the Washington area that were that were even ongoing while Hoover was alive. Because let's remember that good old J. Edgar Hoover officially died on May second, nineteen seventy two. Most of the reports say May first of nineteen seventy two, but they couldn't let it be known that that was May Day. May Day. <laughs> The communist celebration. Oh, the communists will be <laughs> dancing for joy knowing that Hoover's dead. And, of course, uh, Hoover's uh, personal and confidential files were destroyed by his alert secretary before anybody from the Justice Department could get a hold of them. These allegedly were very, very juicy blackmail files on all kinds of politicians and included an ongoing, continuing file on the Alger Hiss case for reasons that remain unexplained. Who knows? Well, the, that's the other thing about Nixon is that nothing from the past stays buried in the past. They all sort of resurface, whether it's the Bay of Pigs or the Alger Hiss case or his uh, fixation on the Kennedys. Um, it's always uh, sort of in the murky mix. Um, and when Allen left the NSC, he, he, like I said, he joined this east-west uh, sort of informal, uh, as uh, um, Haugen puts it, a fourth world buffer. It says one of the first countries, and I'm quoting here from Haugen, Allen approached after leaving the White House for a second time was Romania. And surprisingly, the commissars proved enthusiastic. The idea of a corporate principality, a sort of fourth world buffer to mediate financial transactions between the East and West, appealed to them. It's well known historically that Nixon was close to Nikolai Ceausescu for reasons that remain unexplained. Perhaps even money was being funneled in from Romania. I mean, it's well established that there was money coming from the Greek military mm -hmm. oh yeah that's comes up over and over this is why agnew was put on the ticket <laughs> yeah well that and you know impeachment insurance <laughs> impeachment insurance yeah which uh of course didn't work because they went after agnew first <laughs> he was forced to resign on the 10th of october 1973 to be replaced by a Congressman from the Grand Rapids area named Gerald R Ford that's right well uh all through the 80s the uh you know, uh, now lamented uh, quarterly magazine, uh, Covert Action Quarterly, or Covert Action Information Bulletin, as it was originally called, uh, wrote uh, extensively about the connections between uh, Reagan administration uh, appointees and these sort of fringe uh, fascist uh, figures from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this, this character, Weiler, just to familiarize yourself a little bit with him, he gave, allegedly, a $2 million donation to the Nixon campaign and that the two men had dined together in New York's plush Cote Basque. Not itself a crime, but evidence of their relationship. In addition, Nixon's campaign headquarters had been located in the Hotel Pierre, believed to be owned by Weiler. If Specter was right about the French industrialists, the president of the United States owed a substantial debt to one of the most important financiers of heroin. Now, well, Nixon would yeah. want to keep all that stuff secret. And he certainly would want to know if um, 
Larry O'Brien or Michael Oliver knew anything about it. But uh, there is some very strange stuff because Egil Crow has always been a very interesting, uninvestigated figure in the Watergate scandal. He was allegedly the organizer of the plumbers. Right. And he eventually... During the as the Watergate scandal was unfolding, he changed his plea. He said, "Quote in good conscience, I cannot invoke national security, so I'm pleading guilty." Uh, I, and I'm pretty sure he pled guilty to obstruction of justice. But the other fascinating thing about Angel Crow was he was named to the um, Air Traffic Controller National Transportation Investigation Committee. Shortly after E. Howard Hunt's wife died in a plane crash in December of 1972. Nixon had been reelected. Watergate was not yet a problem. But clearly at that point, Hunt was blackmailing Nixon. Mm -hmm. And in the Yankee and Cowboy War, the famous Carl Oglesby book, just fascinating to realize that Crow was immediately put onto this committee investigating this air crash this was an air crash by the way that occurred in chicago in december 72 in which uh, dorothy hunt's uh, luggage was it was found fifteen thousand dollars of cash with a thank you note it said thank you fs which allegedly stood for frank sturgis um hunt was collecting money for all the cuban burglars he had recruited them mm -hmm. several of them were Veterans of the Bay of Pigs, and they seem to be a kind of little private <laughs> operation that Hunt could turn to from time to time. Very fascinating stuff. But Nixon's uh, immediate appointment of Egil Crow to this uh, transportation committee investigating this air crash has uh, led to some speculation that this crash might not have been accidental. Not everybody died on the crash, by the way. It was one of those skidding on the runway things that killed something like 40 people. I don't have the Oglesby notes with me at the moment, but amazing stuff. And, of course, this might be why uh, Hunt began to escalate his demands. <laughs> he might have thought, wait a minute, the White House killed my wife. <laughs> Something's odd here. Time to up the ante. Now, Gordon Liddy was always willing to fall on his sword. And they talk about in the transcripts how much they admire him for so yeah. so doing. Yeah. yeah but they, this Hunt guy, he, he knows too much. He knows too damn much. <laughs> Does Gore Vidal call him the uh, master forger of state papers? Well, he was the master forger of state papers. This is one of those other fascinating mysteries of, of Watergate. Now, I've... I've Pretty sure that Egil Crow, Jeb Magruder, and John Dean are all still alive. So it'll be fascinating to find out if there are f memoir finales from these these characters because they all played very very important roles in the Watergate scandal. Um, Dean certainly, because of his personal conversations with Nixon on on so many instances, mm. would would know probably even more than he has admitted to. But it's fascinating to note that uh, E. Howard Hunt's safe was cleared out following his arrest. 
This, of course, was the initial linkage to the White House. Bob Woodward, who was basically working the police beat, got a tip from one of the uh, lawyers, I think it might have been Hunt's lawyer, that these guys were going to be arraigned on Saturday. They, they were caught, they were arrested Friday night, probably Saturday morning, whatever. So he was there for the arraignment. And then he realized, wait a minute, these guys are wearing $300 suits. These are not burglars. These are not cat burglars. These guys are better dressed than Cary Grant and To Catch a Thief. <laughs> so this immediately became the linkage that Woodward began reporting on the White House is connected to this. Because uh, Hunt and Liddy worked for the committee to reelect the president. Well, taken out of E. Howard Hunt's safe was a revolver <laughs> and a file, several files apparently, that were deliberately destroyed by L. Patrick Gray, apparently in the presence of John Dean. John Dean has called the file political dynamite, quote-unquote. He's never revealed what was in the file. But amongst the documents that it was later proven that Hunt did work on were forgeries, something that Nixon would know all about. They were forgeries of State Department cables that um, implicated John F. Kennedy in the assassination of Diem. Now, it is well known that John F. Kennedy did not authorize an assassination. He did authorize a coup. <laughs> and Kennedy, when told of the death of, of the Diem, Brothers was shocked as as people who said they looked at him and couldn't believe it because he was given assurances that they would be ferried out of the country, probably to a, a safe haven like Costa Rica or Haiti. <laughs> <laughs> or where did Imelda Marcos end up? Hawaii? I think so, yeah. So, somewhere like that. But anyway, uh, the, these, these Ford State Department cables are fascinating because... Uh, Defenders of Hess would argue that that's what they did in that case. They forged cables. Well, and in the Rosenberg case, too, the FBI, you know, faked evidence. Yeah. Uh, it was something they did, whether it came down to manipulating a typewriter or uh, in the bizarre case of the Rosenbergs, a little device made out of a jello box. A little packaged cardboard box of jello brand gelatin became a crucial turning point in the evidence. And, of course, forged papers of you know go way back in American history to uh, you know World War II. The British intelligence for, faked a lot of documents to convince Roosevelt uh, about uh, German... Um, uh, oh, the Zimmerman Telegraph. The and so Zimmerman forth. Telegram yeah. from World War I. to get back to more of uh, Gray Matters discussion there next week or on Robot Pasta as it is the 7 o'clock hour and uh, time for Yadzoo City Calling. Okay, it's Tampa Red in the background telling you it is the 7 o'clock hour here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Jerry Mack, your host this evening for an hour-long excursion into the land of Delta Blues and early urban blues performed and lived by the men and women who started it all. 
And this uh, track from Tampa Red called the... Uh, let's see here. I played this before. Moan and Heart Blues, of course. And this is uh, recorded 